What's up, Euphonauts? I have a special guest with me today. He's a good friend of mine, fellow podcaster, Matt Sanderson. Matt, how you doing, buddy? I am doing fantastic. Thanks for having me on the show, man. It's been a long time in the works, I feel like. I've dropped a quite a few hints to try to get on your show, <laughs> and uh, we're finally making it happen. So I'm, uh, I'm very, uh, I'm thrilled, man. Yeah, absolutely. We uh, we we've definitely gone back and forth. You know, things come up, but uh, we're doing it now. And you're kind of the perfect person to talk about the ancient astronaut theory with, because you yourself are an anthropologist. You went to school for anthropology, and while you may not be, you know, in the desert, you know, interpreting. Uh, Egyptian hieroglyphs as aliens, uh, you, you definitely are, are more qualified than me to talk about it. So you're, you're the perfect person to have on for this. And uh, likewise, uh, we're going to be talking about two things, ancient astronaut theory and the men in black. So um, How are those connected? Well... <laughs> the, the connections may not be there, but you know what? We're talking about them anyway, because it's my damn show, and that we do what we want here. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah, actually, it's, it is funny. Um, I, I went to school for anthropology, but before that, I was studying archaeology, and I did a dig in um, Lillooet, which is in like the Okanagan, which is a um, deserty region of British Columbia, which is actually where I'm from. Um, so I actually have dug around in kind of a desert. Um, it was like 40 <laughs> degrees Celsius. So, uh, I might be able to speak to that. Um, uh, um, so yeah, look, when I was taking archeology, span um, speaking to some of the, uh, my fellow undergrads, I would ask them like, have you ever heard of this Eric Von Daniken guy? And they would all be like, oh yeah, that's what really got me into archeology. span And then I asked a few profs, even like some of the older ones. And they're all like, yeah, I totally read Chariots of the Gods, and and that's kind of what got us all into archaeology in the first place. It's something we don't really talk about much, but it's definitely a thing. So I read Chariots of the Gods, like, I don't know even how I got it, but I must have read it in, like, 1999. And, like, well before I even went to university, or, like, a year before I went to university. <laughs> um, it dated myself a bit. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think, like, I'm... Like most archaeologists, uh, Chariots of the Gods is, like, weirdly very influential. Is it something that, like, most people won't admit to? Is it something that, like, most anthropologists won't admit to reading? Because, I mean, it is dealing with something that's very fringe to, the, to that area of science. Like, is this, like, the closet kind of obsession? <laughs> It is. Yeah, totally. And like, I think most anthropologists, either they outright believe in aliens or they they're like open to the idea of there being extraterrestrials. Like I fully believe in aliens, but the ancient alien theory, like put forth by Danikin and like taken forward by others, that's something that I, I, don't know, I draw this like line in the sand. So while it being very much an influence on many anthropologists and archaeologists, um, it's not something that they would believe in, um, and it is something that they get quite angry about, because if you think about it, those theories um, and those sort of quote-unquote findings put forward in, in books like Dan Danikin wrote 
it kind of delegitimizes the discipline, um, while it also, at the same time, gets people really interested in the discipline. So it's kind of like this weird double-edged sword. And honestly, like archaeology, anthropology, we kind of need people to get interested in the discipline. There's not a lot of people who are like really head over heels into into ancient history, you know. So uh, books by him, it was bestsellers, and and yeah, it was it was very influential. Uh, so influential that um, in my, I, I initially went to college in 2002, graduated in 04, and then at that point I was just like, I already have a job, what the hell do I need to continue on with this, which was a really dumb move on my part, but I went back to school in 2009, and I was going for a bachelor's in uh, business administration, but my <laughs> my uh, minor was in anthropology, <laughs> so I definitely got a taste. And like uh, around that time, this is when ancient aliens started to become like a hit thing. It started in March of two thousand nine uh, with the pilot episode, and it, and it was really about von Donikin and and his theories. And, I mean, he's been at this since 1968. So, is there good evidence to suggest that maybe aliens have visited us in the past? Now, like, it's not an easy <laughs> thing to say. I'm not, I, I like, I'm I almost... i take a sip of beer before I answer. <laughs> Just keep going. Keep, keep proposing your question and preface, preface the hell out of it, please. <laughs> like, there is... I'm going to just make the statement. There is no evidence to suggest that uh, on the f on the face of it that aliens have ever really visited our planet. Like there's no 100% proof. You you can't really take someone an alien artifact and say, "Listen, this is 100% true. This is aliens and I and I have proof of it." Is there anything to suggest that the claims that people like Giorgio Sukalos, David Childress, and all these people on Ancient Aliens. Is there anything to suggest that maybe aliens visited us in the past? Well, okay, I'm going to do one of those Trumpian double negatives. So there's <laughs> there's no evidence that suggests that they did not visit us in the past. Mm. So like, <laughs> I'm a bit of a moderate a little bit. Um, so let's just get into the ancient alien thing. Um, so Eric von Daniken wrote this book, Chariots of the Gods, in 1968, right? Mm -hmm. And it took like a couple of years, but it became very popular very quickly. And it spawned a whole bunch of sequels and follow-ups and things, right? But it's basically the theory that aliens came down and delivered either technology or knowledge to humans at various times through our development, giving us like an evolutionary kind of jump start, right? Mm. And okay, so there's a few issues with this. So right off the bat, the theory is kind of racist, right? Mm -hmm. So white skinned people, they will be cast, so like say English people who built Stonehenge, their monumental architecture will be cast as something that is used to communicate with the extraterrestrials, whereas brown-skinned people, say people from the Middle East or Mesoamerica, their architecture is used to kind of draw them in. 
So the brown-skinned people are often cast in books by Danikin and the others that have come after him as the receivers mm-hmm. of information. Yeah. And white-skinned people are like interlocutors, like they're go-betweens. So they're like communicating almost on the same level. So it's very ethnocentric. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> and you could definitely, you could definitely see that it's a huge problem, especially when you look at the people on Ancient Aliens. I would say ninety-five percent of the people on that show are white. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So often, brown-skinned people they're they're portrayed as either worshiping like the alien other or as receivers of knowledge and they're given the knowledge it's not like they go out and seek it like the white-skinned people now there's this photo i sent you of akhenaten who is possibly king tut's father and uh his wife is nefertiti so kind of famous egyptian pharaohs akhenaten he put forward this religion that so Egypt, they worship the sun, but Akhenaten worshiped like the disk of the sun, so the actual physical object. And there's this photo where it shows him kind of receiving information from the Aten, the uh, the sun disk, and it shows kind of these hands reaching down at him. Now in Chariots of the Gods, they would say that that is an alien presence, kind of delivering knowledge down to this Egyptian pharaoh who, honestly, like the Egyptians, right in like around the mid-1300s BCE, um, they they didn't really need knowledge being given down. They're a pretty advanced civilization. So so that's where it kind of comes down, you know. Akhenaten, they often peg him as this almost heretic to the extent that they tried to remove all semblance of him in like their records is i mean is that accurate yeah totally so he ruled for 17 years and i just had to pull up my notes there and it's close 1336 bce um so when he died so he moved the capital he moved the religious capital as well and um reoriented the religion around kind of like basically like monotheistic um, so rather than being multiple gods that they worship, they would just worship the sun disk, this Aten, right? And when he died, you'd see in the monuments that his faces would be uh, chipped out, him and Nefertiti. And this is why I think he's King Tut's father. Um, there has been some genetic studies that kind of link them. But because he was such a disgraced religious uh, leader and a pharaoh, nobody would remember who his son was. So King Tut's grave was essentially forgotten, and that's why it so, was so richly adorned, because it hadn't been robbed, because nobody knew it was there. And at the same time, it's not like Tutankhamun was... He wasn't a great leader in history now, was he, though? No, he had a short reign. He uh, took over when he was, like, a teenager, like 14, 15, kind of in that range. And it was a short reign, and it was, like, I think maybe, like, a few years and then they got back to the polytheistic kind of traditional ways, moved the capital back to the traditional centers and just kind of moved on and just kind of tried to forget this ever happened. And it was only like, I guess, grand total, maybe 20 years. To me, he's kind of like the JFK of pharaohs. It's like, just... (laughs) (laughs) I can see that. I, I, You know, and this is the interesting thing when it comes to ancient alien. So they'll be like, oh... 
Akhenaten was given this information by the aliens. You can see it in all the iconography, um, which completely discredits the monumental religious innovation that he made in 1336 BCE, right? 1300 years before um, Christianity and say, what? Do the quick math. Um, oh my gosh. 800 years before Judaism. Uh, so they had a monotheistic religion. It was the first ever attempt. It only lasted 20 years. But to me, that's a religious innovation that is monumental in scale. And when it comes to the ancient alien theory, when you just say aliens are giving them this information, it completely discredits all these innovations that ancient uh, peoples uh, made. Yeah, which uh, is definitely one of the destructive things about the ancient astronaut theory is it relies so heavily on misinterpreted history and it's incredibly problematic so there's another image that you showed me and it's uh and it's one that they tout all the time and it's an image of um Lord Pakal on his tomb and it's this relief of him that they claim is him flying a spaceship <laughs> <laughs> yeah totally and if you look at it one direction um, where he's kind of with his back facing down and his face and body and his knees kind of he's in like a crouch position facing upwards mm -hmm. it looks like an astronaut in a rocket ship and that's the connection. However, that's built on the premise that all aliens fly what we fly, conventional rocket ships. And if you're an intergalactic alien race that is visiting us on occasions back like, what, 1400 years ago, uh, I don't think you're using rocket ships. So that theory <laughs> is just right there, boom, done. Um, so what it actually represents, if anyone's interested, is his descent um, into the underworld, the afterlife. And um, the um, kind of like the base that's going through him, the thing that he's going down, um, is the Axis Mundi, which is the Tree of Life, which is an icon that you see all across the world uh, amongst cultures that have no way of um, being in contact. So uh, the Celtic people in the British Isles, for example, they had a lot of Tree of Life um, symbolism, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so they had no contact with Mesoamerican people in the classical period. Uh, so this is where, like, it's interesting anthropologically because the symbolism is shared. And this is another thing where, with the ancient alien theory, the explanations are so simplistic that it's almost like less interesting than the real story behind it. Like the fact that two cultures that are separated in place and time would use the exact same iconography is, to me, anthropologically fascinating. Yeah, and is this a one in a million chance or is there some kind of connection? And they're going to push, what, there's like, uh, you know, alien civilizations just making the rounds around the world and just giving knowledge out left and right. And, uh, and I tend to agree with you because their explanations are very simplistic because it's not like in the iconography left and right you see images of disc-shaped objects or like like what like modern alien, UFO. You know? Yeah. 
yeah, or what modern UFOs that people report today, why wouldn't they look like that? Oh, you know, this is actually, okay, this is something I didn't think I was going to talk about, and I can't just because it's off the top of my head, and that's kind of a funny pun when I tell you what I'm thinking. Um, so there was a practice, again, one of these practices that was practiced, holy cow, across uh, many parts of the world at various times, and typically amongst uh, the royalty. They basically strap a board to the head of an infant and mm. keep it on there until they're like five years old. And it would intentionally deform the shape of the skull so that it's like long, high, and sloping. And dude, it looks exactly like gray aliens. So when you think of, um, when you see images of Akhenaten and Nefertiti, you can see that they kind of have like a long sloped head. And it was a common practice, um, not all the time done in Egypt, but common enough that you can sometimes see people who have this sort of shaped head. Other archaeologists and um, kind of medical archaeologists, they for, um, suggested that um, Akhenaten, the pharaoh, the male male pharaoh, he had um, some sort of birth defect. And that's why he looks so like weird in all of his like stone reliefs that you see. Like if you Google image him, you're like, whoa, like, what's that guy's deal? But then also... <laughs> You see these images of Akhenaten. This is another thing that's anthropologically really interesting in the story that's more interesting than the ancient alien. If you see images of him and Nefertiti, um, you often see like two little kids with them or little children playing and they're holding them like tenderly, which is something that um, compared to like, say, images of Ramses II, uh, who's like just standing like a statue, right, and very strong. Um, it that was complete like socially and culturally that was completely never done before as revolutionary in Egypt and that's another thing that freaked people out they're like oh my god he's holding his kids that's disgusting probably is what they thought <laughs> so they're being they're being good parents so it's, it's wrong <laughs> yeah that, that probably freaked like and then there that's another thing that's anthropologically interesting it's like it's, we call it relativism where you're like you got to put yourself in their shoes so an ancient Egyptian at that time, if they heard that their pharaoh was playing with their kids, that would probably freak them out because the pharaohs are gods, or they're supposed to be. And if a god is interacting with you, that's like it's like some next level shit, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's just I don't know. I can't even, and you can't even really understand. But then, then you get to start speculating and interpreting, and like, and that's that's where it's more interesting. So I have a quote here. Um, I'm terrible at reading quotes, but, like, give me a shot. Um, <laughs> and I want you to try to guess who um, who said this. <clears throat> so it's about Eric Von Daniken. Um, that writing as careless as Von Daniken's, whose principal thesis is that our ancestors were dummies, should be so popular, is a sober commentary on the credulousness and despair of our times. sorry. I also hope for the continuing popularity of books like Chariots of the Gods in high school and college logic courses as object lessons in sloppy thinking. I know of no recent books so riddled with logical and factual errors as the works of Von Daniken. <laughs> That's a great quote. <laughs> I, I, have, I have no idea who said that. Carl Sagan. Oh, there we go. There we go. <laughs> Pulled that one just for you, buddy. Oh, um, good old Carl. <laughs> and, and, and this all gets down to, like, it. the ancient alien theory is, is like, 
academically or cognitively kind of lazy. It's like, it's more interesting to think like, how do people do this? Um, and you, if you look at archaeology and you study it, you can see that they build upon and develop like feats of engineering or artistic aesthetics or like religious developments that you saw with Akhenaten, um, that the process is actually more interesting to explore and hypothesize on. So to me and most archaeologists, after you read Chariots of the Gods, the ancient alien theory is like, it becomes sort of boring. So you like watch two episodes or read one of Danica's books and you can kind of understand everything and just write off like certain sites, you know, so it's like kind of academically lazy. Um, now, one thing I'll say just about archaeology is a bit of a disclaimer. But archaeology, we'll always say in archaeology that the record, the archaeological record is very fragmentary. It's like 99% of the record has been lost, right? Mm -hmm. So, but even so, you can see these like clear, clear evidence of like building upon itself, this sort of process and technology or art of like development, right? And sometimes you even see like borrowing. So we call that exchange in anthropology. So you see that amongst groups. So just thinking of like how Europe got gunpowder, for example. So like even seeing those processes of how technology, for example, develops, that's fascinating as well. It kind of makes you wonder where this line of thinking comes from. Are we just bored to the point where we don't think that like science is giving us the answer quick enough. So we have to speculate that aliens, like just aliens did it. Like, I, I think so. And it's also like, you see them cherry picking examples as well. Like, like the Nazca lines, right? Like mm -hmm. that's another like really classic example they bring up. And, um, they're like, how can you possibly build that without being able to fly? Like without being in a plane, and like yesterday when I was walking my dog, I'm like, I would ask you, okay, how about this instead, Rob? If you had to build the Nazca lines, you and like you have a team of 100 people, how would you do it? Like, explain your process. Who? Um, I I have no idea how I would build that. First thing you do, get a stick. <laughs> Second thing you do, clear a place in uh, some sand, and you basically draw out the drawing you want. And you just scale it up, right? Like mathematically, it's just like a multiplication, right? Mm -hmm. And just as so long as you like, you know, it's a little more advanced. You got to make sure the lines are straight and things like this, and it's coordinated. Um, like not downplaying the feat of engineering that it is, but basically the process. Like you don't need a plane; you just need a stick and some sand. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, see, that's totally logical, and like, it's clear that the Nazca people. Because uh, we have evidence that they would basically walk the lines and they would drink, like, ayahuasca or something like that. And they would just take, like, what, clay containers and just throw them down? Yeah, exactly. And they um, they would eat a lot of, like, mushrooms up there as well. Um, so, like, maybe they're, like, having some mushroom tea. And, yeah, they just they walk the lines. And so there's many interpretations of what the Nazca lines are, I had it written down, but I know them off the top of my head. Um, one of the interpretations is that they're a navigation tool. So um, Nazca is in like southern Peru. It's in like a high desert plateau. And um, there's not a lot of like features, so you can get lost pretty easily. So that's one explanation. Another explanation is that because it's a desert, it directs you to sources of water. Right? And then the third one is that it directs you on like trade routes and things like this. And it's like 
maybe kind of like uh, totem poles amongst uh, the West Coast um, First Nations and like Canada. Uh, it's like a territorial marker as well. See, that makes sense. I don't even need to think about aliens. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know, I know. And, you know, the other thing about the Nazca lines, I'll just say, people were building it over a span of 1,000 years, right? So, like, they took their time. It wasn't just, like, some alien came down or a UFO came down and just, like, what, spit a bunch of rocks out from the bottom of their <laughs> spaceship and they formed, like, this amazing monkey-like shape. Um, so, yeah, there's um, all these different explanations, but... Yeah, it's just another one of those. And and so in archaeology, we either gather, we gather the information first, we gather the data by like digging in the dirt. Um, but then there's this huge interpretive component because the archaeological record is so fragmentary. There's a lot of interpretation that goes on. So all those explanations I said for the Nazca lines, they should all be seen together. Like it's probably like all of those things and probably like six more things. Oh, uh, they have religious significance and um, social cultural significance for the people as well, of course, right? Like maybe we would be the monkey people, right? Me and you, Rob, I can see that. And uh, <laughs> we lived over by the monkey thing, but we would need to know where the wolf people are or whatever. So we follow the Nazca lines. So there's many simple explanations, and then you can go a little wild with it, but basically they didn't get shot out from the bottom of a UFO. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean... It's not like there's any designs in the Nazca Desert that are, like, out of the ordinary. It'd be one thing if, like, you're getting animal species that aren't native to South America, but you're not really getting that. Yeah, like a panda bear or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would like, be pretty wild. Like, yeah, that would be... That. <laughs> yeah, that would be more... That would be evidence to suggest that maybe uh, somebody paid them a visit at some point, in, or that maybe it was a species that existed long ago and they it went extinct or something. But aliens just... You can look for whatever you want in anything that doesn't have a clear and definitive explanation. And that's where all of this comes from. And, like, we're 13 seasons into this damn show, and it shows no sign of stopping. <laughs> yeah, and that's the weird thing. It's like, when your premise is so flimsy, your examples are can be endless, right? So, like, there is literally no end. It's... um. It's amazing. So, like, okay, the last example I'll bring up, and then maybe we'll talk about Men in Black, because it's a little less of a bummer. But I do have one <laughs> thing. Remind me to say this one thing about Eric Von Daniken at the end. It's, it's a good one. Um, so, we, obviously, you're part of the Astonishing Research Corps. I'm a humongous fan of Astonishing Legends. Um, and I thought they did a, like, phenomenal job, archaeologically speaking, of uh, Gobeki Tepe. Uh, that's a very fascinating site and it dates from the neolithic which is pre 10,000 years ago so it's um before like the dawn of agriculture which a lot of people point to at 10,000 years so gobeke tepe is like 15,000 years old and they did a really good job of covering it archaeologically even that like processualism post-processualism part which like even as somebody who studied archaeology, man, I had to fast forward a lot of that. I was like, all right, man, I get it. I know, I know. Bruce Trigger, let's go, let's go. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> it took me back to like traumatic moments watching like friends give like talks on on that turn. 
Oh, so dry. But anyway, so <laughs> Gobekli Tepe is like a perfect example of um, ancient alien theorists not giving credit to like ancient brown skinned people. So that, again, they're 10,000 years plus old, right? Mm-hmm. Um, my wife and I, we on our honeymoon, we went to Europe backpacking. It was awesome. And we went to Malta. Big mistake. Uh, once you go to Malta, it's so expensive to get off of Malta. Cheap to go, hard to get off. You heard it here first. Um, but uh, on Malta, they have um, they look like Stonehenge essentially, uh, and they date to the same time as Gobekli Tepe. Um, they're like ten thousand plus years old, and these monumental megalithic uh, stone structures, and they have like archways and everything. Um, so nobody really knows about those places. Nobody says that aliens gave the Maltese people. Uh, the knowledge to build a monumental architecture. But for some reason, Gobekli Tepe, uh, like those columns or that the iconography on there, that has to have come from aliens, right? Oh, yeah. And that gets yeah. to that, that racism, which is, I think, at the root of the ancient alien theory. And if you think of it that way, then it shouldn't be a surprise that it's really popular right now. Yeah, for sure. And <laughs> I I pray to God that the show goes away soon. I, I, I don't see it because it's such a it's such a cultural touchstone right now because I I mean we you even have two quote unquote alien cons now as opposed to one. You have one on the west coast, one on the east coast, and it's just it's 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 kind of depressing. I, I I'll be the first to admit that. Um, so, Do you think, sorry, can I just ask like maybe more of a philosophical question of you because I'd be interested in your thoughts, man. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think it's like a crisis of critical thinking? Do you think that's what's going on right now? Like, we can say it's a failure of the school system, but like, I don't like. Do you think that's what's going on? Do you think it's like people aren't critically thinking? They just go for the easy explanation. That very well could be. I can't rule that out because. Even if you look at these reliefs that they say, you know, or or, or whatever is, like, gray aliens, they seem to fail to acknowledge that gray aliens didn't become a cultural touchstone until the late 80s. And, like, it's not like they were common before that. Because if you look at abduction accounts from the 60s, when they really started to occur, all the way up to the late 70s they're varied they're all very strange and even when you talk about uh occupants of ufos and people encountering them they're all varied they're all different they're not all these gray aliens so even when you look at the phenomenon itself and and the modern stuff and then what they look at in the past they definitely seem to be very selective so so Okay, so I got a counter theory that is, I feel like Giorgio Tsoukalos right now, my hair is just rising. What (laughs) if? Uh, (laughs) uh, Okay, so what if uh, aliens, um, they make attempts, they're just bad attempts, because they are, after all, aliens, of being allegorical in their appearance. So they're trying to present themselves to us in, sometimes in a way that, is most familiar, which is what we're going to talk about, Men in Black, and this is maybe the transition, um, or a little bit outlandish to like freak us out or like make us like go and report it or whatever. Like they keep presenting themselves to us in certain ways, and I think there's intentionality behind that. Now, if you think about ancient people, what would be 
reassuring to them what images of like what images could an alien take on themselves shapeshifter wise uh, that would be reassuring to them or shocking to them or maybe just sort of familiar like judeo-christian peoples they would be familiar with angels for example so mm -hmm. while i say all of the ancient alien theory theorizing eric von daniken is all bullshit man all bullshit founded on no fact right mm-hmm it's still 100% likely that um, at various times through human development, aliens have come down and checked on us. What is even more, or I don't know, more possible or also likely possible is maybe they're not aliens at all. Maybe they're us from the future. And maybe what we're living right here is just a big video game. And now I got to go take some alpha brain because I feel like Joe Rogan. <laughs> <laughs> There was um, I'm gonna go shoot my bow and arrow at a deer right now. <laughs> or an elk. <laughs> Fuck the bow and arrow, I'm just gonna use my bare hands. <laughs> you know, anything that could connect you to that past, man, don't go there. <laughs> um, I will thank Joe Rogan for getting me into podcasting. But uh, so oh yeah, the one thing I wanted to say about Eric von Daniken that I didn't want to let myself forget. He was arrested, served time, fined multiple times for embezzlement fraud and outright theft so the guy is like an outright scam artist so there you go oh he also had this weird uh, museum that he opened and it didn't get enough visitors um and it shut down shortly thereafter <laughs> so von donnekin he can't be trusted let's let's just put it like that um yeah <laughs> there was one interesting book that i read by a guy named philip coppins he's been uh, he passed away, like, I want to say six years ago now, and he basically kind of took Von Donneken, you know, to the cleaners. But his theory was, is that we have had contact with aliens throughout our history, but it's not a physical contact. It's through things like ayahuasca and yeah. and, and stuff like that, which I could they totally could, get behind. Yeah, they they could totally well be the gods and the spirits and the forces and... Um, you know, like that's kind of where my religious like orientation swings is more towards like multi dimensions and and forces and energies and things like this, right? It's a lot more like ancient peoples, you know, than like classically Judeo Christian. Uh, so like maybe maybe we are able to tap into their communication wavelengths, but we just like much of the knowledge of the past, we've just forgotten it. Because yeah. people, this knowledge, it, it wasn't written down. It was discussed around the campfire and stuff, you know. So you had to be around that campfire to hear that knowledge, right? So um, that's the unfortunate part about um, about archaeology is you see how much has been lost. You see it firsthand. And, I mean, archaeology itself, while it discovers, it's very destructive in the process of discovery. So Yeah, by its very nature. It's like a paradox, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, and it's um, and then what you're working with, as I said earlier, is like 99% of it has been lost. Um, so it's so hard to like reconstruct just like everyday life, let alone, oh, is that like, is that symbol like an alien or something, or is it just a cat? Like, what is going on here? <laughs> Do they even have cats back then? Like, hey guys, has anyone found any cat bones? That's archaeology. Yeah. Right. Like, it's not like, hey, does anyone find like a Gray alien femur. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> no, no, but uh, they'll keep looking. That's for sure. Um, It'd be awesome if you found them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so transitioning from the the ancient past to a more modern one, the Men in Black. You, you seem to be very fascinated with the phenomenon. Dude, I am what is so... It, what is it about the phenomenon? I'm that... so fascinated by this. Okay, first off, I don't know, maybe this is like, now this is like getting into cultural anthropology. So part of it is like the creepy other, you know, like I'm not um, like afraid of other people, but <laughs> it, the idea of like the other with a capital O, like the, the alien, right, mm-hmm. is kind of freaky. And the thing that is especially disturbing about the men in black is that they come and interact with you and they talk to you and they try to pass themselves off as as kind of like you and to me that is disturbing because they're trying to insinuate themselves into your life and they also masquerade in in america at least as agents of the government or sort of quasi somebody that you would trust so they're intentionally trying to mislead you and all those things are like emotionally disturbing so yeah that, that, that's kind of where i'd start with that <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny i've just spent like 40 minutes tearing apart ancient aliens and then i'm like totally bought, believe in the men in black <laughs> freaks me out like it's almost on the same level now almost as uh, zombies because zombies is something that i'm just irrationally afraid of even though I don't believe in them, but I'm just terrified of zombies. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's interesting. And I think the most, one of that's the things. That's an existential I, thing with the zombies, of course, right? It's the dead and undead. Like, the, yeah. yeah, that's yeah. Right, divide, of course. Yeah, absolutely. That's a rabbit hole, but we don't have to fall down. <laughs> <laughs> um, so honestly, man, it was like, you would hear, like, I only heard about the men in black, like a couple of years ago. Um, and then it just really quickly became a fascination for me. Um, and I think I might have heard it on, like it covered on Astonishing Legends or Not Alone is another one. And I know it's come up a lot of times on your podcast. Um, there was, can you, okay, like obviously your own listeners listen to every single episode and hang on your every word, right? <laughs> um, so um, they'll be familiar with this story. But for the new listeners that you keep getting every week, um, can you retell that is like main story or whatever, like just like cliff notes, you don't have to tell the whole story because it's a long one, but just around the men in black. Sure. Like I would love to hear a little bit and just get freaked out before bedtime. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> so, uh, this, this family physician named Herbert Hopkins was a resident of Maine. He was investigating a case, uh, an abduction case from 1975 of this young man named David Stevens. And he he did approximately six regression sessions with him before they just stopped and they got as much as they were going to get from him. Now, they ended the sessions in March of 76. He gets a visit in, uh, I believe it was September of 76 you know we're, we're months past this he gets a visit from this well first he gets a phone call from this individual claiming that they are from a new jersey research organization and they wanted to talk about the david stevens case with him 
It's 8.30 at night. He's alone in the house. His entire family is, like, out going to a movie, I believe, that weekend. And he, without even thinking of it, he's just like, sure, come on over. We'll talk about it. Very uncharacteristic for him, which is something that you find over and over again with this, is that people do uncharacteristic things of themselves. But as he hangs up the phone, he realizes that he needs to turn on the outside light to his office, which is uh, in the back of his house. As soon as he turns on the light, he sees an individual already walking up the back steps to his office. <laughs> That's when I get freaked out. <laughs> yeah, and he. How did you get here so fast? Like, it, that, it, like that—that space timeness, you know. <laughs> and that's and that's the thing is, they always seem to know more. They always yeah. seem to have some insider information. Deep inside information as well. Like you've never told another soul, or you told one other person, and they yeah, know exactly. Yeah. Mm. So he uh, he opens the door. Guy identifies himself. I I believe, and he just lets him in. No problem. He doesn't he doesn't say anything else. They sit down at the table. Now this individual is very strange looking. He's very thin, tall, pasty complexion. He has no facial hair at all, including eyebrows or eyelashes. He's wearing a... Uh, he's got kind of a fedora hat. He's also got very red lips, which he's going to find out is actually lipstick, in that they're yeah. hiding the fact that he doesn't really have lips. <laughs> of course he doesn't have lips. It's just like a, a slit. Yeah. <laughs> it's a breathing slit. And like that... Okay, so just quick... That is one thing that is very interesting to me about the Men in Black thing. It's this like out-of-timeness of their appearance, right? Like they kind of look and speak and act like they're like gumshoes from like the 40s or 50s. Like a detective um, movie or something like that, right? And I, this is just quick little random theory that's based on nothing. So you know how like TV and radio signals, they get shot out into space, right? Mm-hmm. So if they go long distance, they're delayed getting there, right? So maybe when they received in, by the time they got here and they already had their prearranged outfit, they thought it was like the 1950s. Or maybe they're like, ah, we'll get there in like 100 years or something. So they're like, let's just pick something from like the middle of the, the century and we'll just look like that. And it's our highest likelihood of not like looking like aliens. Like we can't wear like silver spacesuits. They're, they're like 100 years away from the silver spacesuits. You know, they're, they're just humans, right? Mm-hmm. So like maybe, maybe it took them a long time to get there. And then all of a sudden it's like they arrive and it's like 1978. And you're like, oh shit, everyone's in bell bottoms. <laughs> like, I look like, <laughs> like I look like Dick Tracy over here. <laughs> and, and oh man, they have lips still. <laughs> I got to put these back on because of course they're us in the future, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think what's interesting is, is that while they seem like people out of time, what they're wearing is not necessarily ever going out in style their vehicles no. may like they, yeah, they yeah. are always driving like like studebakers and stuff yeah cadillacs <laughs> from like the 50s or 60s but their clothes are surprisingly always in style for the most part and mm. that yeah that's that's one of the interesting things like 
what Hopkins notes about this guy is that his suit is so perfectly pressed that when he sits down, the creases uh, like are perfect. They there's no imperfections. That's right. That's the thing that I remember. I was like, what? <laughs> like, that would be so weird to see. Yeah. Could you imagine seeing that? <laughs> I don't want to imagine seeing what Mr. Hopkins, what Dr. Hopkins saw, because it's just, it gets so weird. And, and, and so keep going. Yeah, could tell, tell us a little bit more just to freak me out more. <laughs> <laughs> so he asks him about the David Stevens case, and when he's done talking about it, the, the men in black just goes, well, that's exactly what I thought. Like, he, he just knew it off the top of his head. Like, And, and meanwhile, this is 1975. Mm. It's not like abduction cases are heavily popularized. Uh, the point I made with David Stevens' case is that it occurred about nine days before Travis Walton's case did, which kind of just blew up after that. Like, Travis Walton's case just sucked up so much media attention that they did start to become popular after that, but even still, it's like, it's only going to become popular to a fringe sect, and then the rest is going to just ridicule it. Yeah, so, well, then you see, like, um, the National Enquirer and the Weekly World News, and that that's when those papers became big in, like, North America, right? It was yeah. kind of like that late 70s, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and then... And- this and what happened after they like chatted like after he's like i know everything like did you just get up and leave like because i always like hearing like the exit because the exit is always like super awkward (laughs) like how how do you like (laughs) as a man in black how do you remove yourself from this awkward social encounter that you're very confused by (laughs) (laughs) so anthropologically speaking of course yeah oh yeah uh so this individual he proceeds to tell Dr. Hopkins to uh, tell him what the contents of his pocket was, which is very strange. It's not like right. we all have insider information about what's in everybody's pockets. So he tells they him actually to teach t- you that in anthropology 200. Uh, but oh, really? That's okay. Yeah, I no, never they, took I never took I ne- any of the 200 courses. They were all See, 100 there courses. Go. There you go. See, that's your problem. That's your problem, Robin. <laughs> Are they teaching you sleight of hand in our in the anthropology class? That's 300. That trick where you pull the coin out from behind your ear. Yeah. It uh, <laughs> before you ask someone to be interviewed, you're like, "Hey, do you want to be interviewed by me? I have my own recorder <laughs> with my Tilly hat on that has no purpose because I did all my research inside." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so uh he tells dr hopkins to take one of the coins in his pocket out of and put it in his hand and it's a it's a dime he takes the dime out he holds it out and he's looking at the guy and the guy tells him no don't look at me look at the coin and the coin proceeds to change colors and then it becomes hazy uh, as if it's like going out of focus for him. And then all of a sudden it just disappears. And then the Men in Black says, Do you know how Barney Hill died? Now, Barney Hill is, uh, up to that point, is one of the most famous uh, abduction um, witnesses. Him and his wife, uh, Betty, they they were involved in the first really popularized abduction case. Right, right, yeah. And Dr. Hopkins isn't sure. He thinks he had a heart attack or something like that. And I I believe he ended up dying from a stroke. 
and <laughs> the the Men in Black says the most convoluted thing that he could. He says, uh, "Barney Hill died because he didn't have a heart." And, oh, wow! <laughs> yeah, like what? What the hell are you talking about? You, this, this, that is just—it's unsettling to think about. But at the same time, it's just so damn convoluted that I would I'm, start laughing. I'd be yeah. like, "Man, are you an alien?" Who yeah. are you? Get out of here, man. Yeah. Or do you, are you hungry? <laughs> you want a peanut butter sandwich? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Take me with you. <laughs> but they, they seem to be able to, like, have that, not, like, control over your ability to, like, not let them in the house. Like, the fact that you're just like, oh, hey, dude with no lips, come on in. <laughs> and especially at that time, too, like, a, a man wearing, or what looks like a man, with no facial hair, uh, wearing lipstick in like 1975 that's not something like it's probably not something you see every day so like it's no. weird that he would just be like oh come on right in not ask for identification which is another thing you think this person maybe works for the government you'd be like let me see your id so all these like decisions that he makes is very suspect right and you see honestly you see similar things with like the black-eyed kids right uh where people's like they they have the inability to like decide to like drive away or something you know yeah, for sure. It's it's contrary to what a normal person would do and what's happening. How are they affecting you in this way? You know, it's 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 a very strange thing, but the shock factor of it all is it just how does that affect someone's decision-making skills at that point? I mean, it's not just the idea that you're letting someone in your house, it's the fact that someone was walking up your stairs before you even turned on the light and you yeah. you're now in the strangest situation you've ever found yourself in and there's a guy telling you that uh Barney Hill doesn't have a heart just like he doesn't have a coin anymore <laughs> that's right you look down you're like well damns if you're not right <laughs> where did that thing go <laughs> I it's think behind be... your ear after yeah. 300. <laughs> I think it'd be hilarious if that was like his favorite dime and then he just started beating the crap out of the guy. <laughs> and that's the day he snapped. <laughs> <laughs> that's the day Hopkins ended up in the local mental facility or something. Oh, that's hilarious. Um, so have you ever seen that? I don't know if it's, I'm sure it's been debunked by now or, or not. Um, but maybe a number of months ago, there was like a viral-ish video going around where it showed a man man in black going into like a bank and there there was a couple of screenshots and things like this did you see that no i didn't i did not uh, seriously yeah no I, like I aliens and ufos that i know and you don't <laughs> i don't always I, i'm not always my year is made happy 2018 <laughs> <laughs> i out alien the alien guy <laughs> <laughs> like, that's only, amazing the only footage i've ever seen is that footage from 2008 with uh the two guys walking into the hotel looking for shane sovar because he saw a ufo the other day and they want to talk to him about it <laughs> oh okay that that might be it that might be it and i just came across and then i'm way you way out ufo'd me um, what is that <laughs> what is that story can you tell that one really quick for me sure so yeah i think he was a he was a hotel manager or security manager or something like that this was in 2008 in Niagara Falls. What? Shane, Wait, yeah. New York or Ontario? 
Um, I believe he was on the Canadian side. The better so, side. Yeah, and <laughs> there had been UFO reports in the area, like there was a concentration of them. And one night, Shane Sovar and another guy that he was working with went outside and they saw this UFO just hanging out over the falls. And it eventually actually moved towards them, flew over them, and then just flew away. So a couple of days later, these two guys that looked exactly the same, they're caught on surveillance footage. They come into this hotel and they start asking around for Shane Sovar. Where is he? We want to talk to him. He's not there that day. But they proceed to like harass every employee of the hotel and then just leave. And the thing is, is that this is like a common thing. Like I, I, I was just on Astonishing Legends talking about the Southwest Wales flap and they had these... I just listened to it, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I immediately instant download. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's timely. <laughs> and uh, it, it, a lot of that story revolves around the the Coombs family and they end up getting a visit from people that fit the description of men in black but they show up when the person that they're looking for is not there either they have a really poor conception of time or they do this on purpose it's a perception thing so it's like almost like a show of force or something because it seems also that's one thing that we didn't mention it does often strike you as like very intimidating like, it's silently, like, aggressive. Like, where is yeah. he? Where's Shane? Where's Shane? And it's yeah. like, yo, man, get away from me. Dude, I told you. Who are you? <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's I like mean, that thing. There are situations where um, there was a gentleman by the name of Robert Richardson who, in 1967, he basically hit a UFO with his car. And... <laughs> you imagine if that happened to you like god no one's gonna believe this yeah and and that's that's kind of how it turned out he hits this ufo with his car he's 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 riding with his buddy jerry and they they they're in um it's in ohio at the time and i mean this is when the mothman <laughs> how do you hit something in ohio it's like dude there's nothing to hit <laughs> yeah it's it's like a really strange like mundane place to hit a ufo yeah and he tried to slam on his brakes, but he just couldn't stop in time. And he ends up hitting this UFO with his car. He ends up calling the police, bringing them out there. They couldn't find anything because, like, on the moment of impact, the thing disappeared. And oh, Right. And that happened in Wales as well. You were saying on Astonishing Legends, um, the dude was in a tractor and he, like, yeah. Um, spoiler alert. <laughs> runs over a lady in white, right? And then yeah. he looks under the tractor. He's like, "Oh my god!" And but she came out of nowhere as well because, like, how do you hit a person in the middle of like a Welsh field with a tractor, right? Like, there's <laughs> literally nothing there to, to yeah. like obstruct the view. There's nothing yeah. to jump out from behind. <laughs> she disappeared, and he ran over. Exactly. And, it, and he felt the bump as well, which was the extra creepy thing. Yeah. And, and as you say, that's that perception thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, exa- mm-hmm. exactly. And, like, Richardson goes home. He pulls in for the night, uh, goes to bed, wakes up the next morning, ends up looking at his car, and what he sees is that there's a, a hunk of metal, like, 
embedded into the bumper and there's this section awesome. of the bumper that's actually stripped away like it's oh, wow. and like they actually had it tested and like they found that it was like 98% magnesium which you know may not be completely out of the ordinary but it's interesting to see like how it just like shaved away part of the bumper does that even exist on earth like, do you even um, find 98% magnesium in ore? I know you're not, like, a uh, geological chemist, but, <laughs> but I wonder, is that even possible? Because that's the first question I would ask. Like, uh, does right. that even occur on Earth? What they said about, the like, the because they tested that, they tested the other piece of metal that was embedded into the right. bumper. They, they said it wasn't made of anything, like, exotic or, you mm. know, like, from, you know, non-Earth material or, or something that you wouldn't find on this planet. But it, it was just interesting to find it, like, like I, I don't know, in a, a situation in which, like, that would just strip away, like, the chrome of the bumper. That's just, it, 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 it's wild. But the next day after that, he only told his wife and a couple of members of APRO about this incident. And he gets hey, sorry, a visit. What's, what's APRO? Is that an insurance company or something? <laughs> it's know. it's the UFO insurance company. It's uh, the <laughs> Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization. They oh were, okay yeah they were one of like two of the major uh, UFO research organizations before MUFON popped up. Right, right, and we don't talk about MUFON. Okay, no. go on. <laughs> <laughs> and he uh, he gets a visit from some. Men in Black, they actually... He gets two different visits. And in both cases, they're driving different vehicles. One's driving, like, a 53 Chevy, and then the next one's driving, like, a 67 Plymouth or something like that, but... And what year was this that that happened? 1967. Oh, okay. So, so not that out of the ordinary, I guess, right? That people would um, be in no, a, because it's like, like a 10-year-old car or something? Right, right. Yeah, so... Okay. It would definitely be, you know, in, in style. But the the first set of guys that show up, they basically talk to him normally, you know, and talk about his experience and, and, and such like that. And then it was about a week later, the other guys show up, and they ask him for the hunk of metal that was embedded into his bumper. Again, he only told a couple of people about that. And... They basically said to him, if you want your wife to stay as pretty as she is, you better get that hunk of metal back. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's aggressive. Uh, uh, were yeah. the first people um, that visited uh, um, the week before, were they investigators from the uh, the Aerial Phenomenon organization? No, oh. they were they were not affiliated with them. They were... But it was a relatively normal men in black interaction yeah. i can't believe i just said that i i was i was going for a phd at one point <laughs> but, <laughs> and i love that i could still say that <laughs> i meant that too I'm, I'm being very serious right now too uh, i don't want them showing up like tomorrow could you imagine like we don't tell anybody that we recorded this podcast and then they show up tomorrow morning be like have you been talking to chris christopherson I'm like, no man no i've been talking to rob don't worry about it <laughs> so um so this is all very fascinating. Can I ask you just a couple of general alien um, questions? Yeah, <laughs> Again, another great lead-in. Go um, for it. So why do you think alien encounters happen, not exclusively, but often in like rural settings 
or when there are only like one or two witnesses present. And um, and is that like the norm, do you, do you think? It seems to be the thing. It's always in, generally in isolated settings. There are some cases in which there are numerous people like in a, in a city square um it's not usually in the united states or or such that like have these really bizarre encounters there's one from uh brazil in 1996 uh it's called the veringha alien encounter in which numerous people it was first sighted by i think like three sisters this alien being with red eyes that was just running around the streets there were ufos sighted in the area there was actually a cop that approached it at one point allegedly touched it it ended up like making him sick to the point where he actually died supposedly i it is yeah like brazil for whatever reason has the cases where people end up dying because of encounters with ufos or aliens or whatever but, <laughs> just, okay sorry brazil like there's like 18 jokes that i'm not gonna make um, <laughs> and and that but one that i will make it seems like a situation where it's like hey man have you guys seen frank where's frank <laughs> oh dude oh man look at him go <laughs> look at him go all right let's like, hey hey everyone come over here come over here check this out look at him go <laughs> and they just let him run around for a little bit they're like oh no you got a police officer damn okay let's pick him up zoop and you just beam him up and they fly away <laughs> yeah yeah simple <laughs> like, extraction like, if you're in like you know guys in like submarines and stuff like that guys that work on like battleships and things they get bored they got a lot of time on their hand if you're an intergalactic space traveler um you like to cut loose and have a little fun pull some pranks and that's the interesting thing Another thing is that they'll often mix in like the the joker or the trickster kind of vibe. So why why do you think they do that as well? Other than boredom. What if say this is their group of anthropologists and they're coming down to check out how we are, how we react, how we experience them? Because in many situations it definitely seems like they're gauging our reaction to them. Not in every case. Some maybe sometimes it's a situation where maybe you have some like extraterrestrial kind of visitor, and it's in search of something. It needs something that maybe it's vital to its uh, spacecraft, or maybe it's vital to its culture, or society, or whatever. What's so fascinating is that the encounters. Not even the abductions, you know, we're we're precluding the abductions here. Just the encounters with humanoid-type beings, they are all so different. In many cases, they are not the same. So, when you look at the Kelly Hopkinsville goblins, they have never been seen before or since. If we want to bring up the abductions, the Pascagoula abductors, they are some of the strangest looking individuals that anybody has ever reported. They have wrinkly skin. They have carrot like appendages on their heads right. yeah. <laughs> and lobster claws and elephant feet. And they're bringing these two guides aboard a craft and they're examining them with something that they describe as a giant eye. Like these. You see all... that in the flight of the navigator though. 
But yeah, that, that, yeah well, you got a point there. You do yeah, have a point there. I love that movie. That's probably where it all started for me. <laughs> Flight of the Navigator <laughs> back in the 80s. Um, so then, so that gets back into that like ancient alien thing. So, And we touched on it a bit, but like, what about the idea of it being like allegorical? So we see something that's somewhat familiar to us so that we can kind of understand them. And then sometimes their intentions, the aliens that is, um, they'll put carrots on their heads that they just want to like freak out a couple of dudes off camping, right? Because the other thing that is interesting is that they sometimes seem to really want to be caught, and other times they'll just take two dudes and know that nobody would believe these two dudes who are off camping by themselves. They're like, of course you guys are like high on like whatever the hell, LSD, depending on what decade it was, right? <laughs> um, so like in that case, Maybe that is their true form. They're like carrot heads, right? Carrot top. Maybe carrot top's an alien. Um, but uh, maybe like they sometimes their intentions shift depending on the circumstances. And as an anthropologist, um, we know that pretty well. You got to be like dynamic and adjust yourself to changing cultural circumstances. Um, so yeah, I can totally see that, man. That's honestly what I think as well. I think they're sort of like anthropologists kind of like avatar i think they had like anthropologists in it basically that right so mm -hmm. the other question i really wanted to ask you um was there an uptake in ufo sightings after the airplane was invented or like say the zeppelin or like hot air balloons or something like this and then was there another uptake in you know maybe alien encounters after the atomic bomb so you have planes <clears throat> starting to show up in the what early 1900s yeah so you didn't really start to see ufos until like like really see heavy concentrations of them until 1947 for that it was a few stray incidents here and there you can trace some of it back to there's one really good uh case that i covered from 1878 where this texas farmer was out hunting and he sees this object just fly directly over him it's not like we have anything uh in the air that's a disc shaped flying uh in 1878 so it's like a few stray incidents here and there and then in 1947 that's when the uptick happens that's when they start to become more and more and more prevalent there are incidents from uh, World War Two with the Foo Fighters. Uh, still, I, I every incident of like the Foo Fighters that I ever hear about, it's kind of like it almost seems like a fabricated story in a way. Not to say that they didn't encounter stuff like that, but there isn't a lot of definitive stuff. Hmm. And I can see that. Yeah, and before. 47 there aren't a lot of like even in the years like in in the early 40s there aren't a lot of definitive sightings like people point to the battle of la um in 1942 like there's a very good possibility that people were just on edge because i mean pearl harbor had just occurred oh yeah totally you know recently so like, and they probably have, like, U.S., like, Air Force deploying out in that direction as well. So they're just seeing all sorts of crazy stuff. Or yeah, they, they picture something. Because sometimes, like, when you look up into a blue sky, you see, like, hexagonal shapes and, like, little, 
little like tricks of the eye or whatever, right? When you're staring straight into like a blue sky. Um, so sometimes, I don't know, do you get that? Yeah, I mean... Yeah. It's... Okay, good. I, yeah, I've had a lot of concussions. It could just be that, too. As I was saying, I was like, holy shit, this might make you sound very strange. Our strange skies, eh, bud? Um, so, like, I think, um, honestly, like, the atomic bomb, um, that is... That seems to be, like, the real jumping-off point. It Maybe it takes them, like, a, a couple of years to get here, or whatever. That's why you see the huge explosion in, like, of alien sightings that is in 1947, and beyond um but the the kind of final thing i just wanted to get your thoughts on why do they care so much about earth like why are a lot of these messages that we receive from them if they do give us knowledge and i sort of give a little room for that um even after all the bashing of the ancient alien theory um why do you think they care so much about earth i struggle with that all the time because from the abduction uh, witnesses to the the the, the mass uh, landing witnesses that I that I talked about to just a lot of them bring this message of you're really messing up your planet you should stop doing that you know like you're on the brink of like uh, environmental destruction right like the children in is it Zimbabwe is that yep. where that was yeah, yeah that's that was what I was thinking of yeah. Yeah, and what do they care? Like, why do they care? Are they like, do they have some vested interest in us, or are they thinking that we're a potential future resource, like mine? Maybe they don't want us to screw up our beautiful natural resources, like for economic reasons. That that's a possibility because, like, when you think about it, like, are you traversing the galaxy for altruistic reasons, or do you? Would we, as humans, if we all got, like, intergalactic spaceships, would we be doing it for altruistic reasons? Would it, you know? No, because we're we're going to create Space Force, and we're going to assert our, our um, otherworldly dominance on the universe. Because that's... Yeah. Because yeah. that's what my that's what our president wants to do in the United States. What will States. really happen is you guys will get halfway to the moon, lose interest, turn around, forget where you came from, and and just sort of be lost in space. And then we'll make a reality show out of that. <laughs> <laughs> that that'll be one hell of a reality show. You know? Yeah, and in twelve years you'll see it on the CBC <laughs> in syndication. <laughs> well, I mean, like CBC's, the, the, and I mean, like for us it would be CBS because CBS is just running out of ideas. So, oh really? Uh, <laughs> that, yeah, that because... was the CBC in the seventies, bro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, let's see the the new hot show that CBS is gonna have in the fall is Magnum PI. <laughs> no way, yeah. Magnum PI is coming back. Yeah, is, is it Tom Selleck or is no, it just it's it's, the, the... Uh, it's totally recast. It's kind of like um, does he have a mustache? Um, I believe he has a mustache, but better. Uh, it's probably like I, a wimpy little thin seen... one. I haven't seen really uh, any of the previews, but um, yeah, it's it, they're kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel. They're either doing spin-off shows of their successful shows, or they're bringing back things like Hawaii Five-0 and stuff. Hey, like we that. still have the rights for this. Let's just bring this back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of surprised Hawaii Five-0 is still on because I mean, I went to Hawaii in 2014 and like 
you we'd walk by the hotel every day where they would like film so <laughs> that's hilarious you know what Hawaii Five O, the the new one it's not that bad like there's some like likable characters in there and like we don't have cable right we, we just have an antenna because mm-hmm. you know I'm so cynical and cheap. Um, but uh, <laughs> so, like, some, it gets slim pickings, and I'm like, oh, yeah, right on. Line 5 0. Okay, cool. You can see my friends. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, man. <laughs> so, oh. that's all I got for you, bro. <laughs> Dude, th- thank you so much for coming on and just riffing on ancient aliens and the men in black it's it's been so much fun so like what do you have coming up because i you're a podcaster you you, you've got some stuff in the works so what do you what do you got coming out well you can um still hear me on semi-intellectual musings um we have the chronicity series that phil is working on uh behind the scenes he's um kind of laying out all the content ahead of time and then we're going to record the script so that the um you know the production of it is a little bit faster um and aside from that um ah screw it whatever i'm starting a new podcast um i posted on social media so i don't mind saying it um we're launching mid-september um but i have to work out kind of like not the details but what the podcast is going to be about and and what our message is going to be and all that with my uh, soon-to-be co-host, uh, Evan. So I'm really excited about the kind of new opportunity. And, um, yeah, I'm also looking forward to see what Phil does with uh, Semi-Intellectual Musings as well. So yeah, that is the first time I have publicly announced that, bro. Other than, of course, on social media. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go, man. I was, uh, I was kind of debating whether I was going to do that as well, but... Uh, no, man, you're, you've always been really supportive of uh, Phil and I and our show. Um, so, like, I figured, what the heck, just to share on your show. <laughs> Break the news. Here's a hot scoop. <laughs> I mean, you you guys have been supported. You you've played my you played my promo for during a time when I didn't even have a podcast. It was I was working on it. So, uh, <laughs> I definitely appreciate it. And you also did an episode about me still one of my favorite things ever man (laughs) and you you coined a term called the christopherson paradox yeah that was just one of many terms you're also a canadian alien maybe (laughs) a canadian yeah i'm a canadian apparently <laughs> um yeah no that was a ton of fun i remember uh working on the scripts and then sending it over to phil and like just waiting to see like what he added to it and um yeah that was one where uh it was intended to be an ongoing kind of series but uh but it turned out to just be a one-off and uh it couldn't have been on a better person so <laughs> uh phil and i actually both really like uh i like your show um i'm a huge fan and it's surprising that Phil actually is such a big fan of it because you would think he'd be like super kind of rational or something, but uh, he's secretly into aliens as well. <laughs> so he's just like all of us, man. He's probably right chariots of the gods as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I'm, I'll have him on eventually to talk about the, the social aspects of yeah. the phenomenon because there are definitely theories that do address some of the, you know, maybe more rational 
possibilities to the phenomenon, but you guys are are so freaking awesome. So uh, <laughs> thank you for all the support. Like you guys make me feel like stupid when I listen to your podcast, but that's a good thing. <laughs> oh, that's so silly, man. No, I mean speaking for myself, like I, I feel the same way when I listen to your show, like the Astonishing Legend guys. Like there's a lot of podcasters who make me feel stupid, and um, yeah, you know, with with semi-intellectual musings, like I know it's meant as a compliment, but um, there's a lot of like research that goes into each episode, so. Um, so, like, I, we hear that a lot, but um, I hope we don't make you feel too stupid, Rob. No, but... <laughs> or should we I... call you Chris? <laughs> <laughs> I just had to get one more in. <laughs> oh, my God, no, we're almost done. I only got one of those in. <laughs> no, but you make, you make those subjects, like, more accessible than they would be. And, I mean, I remember... Uh taking a sociology class my first round of college and i absolutely hated it so me too the first time i took sociology we were reading like only stuff written in the 1800s it was so dry it was like herbert spencer and stuff and and augustus compte and i was like what am i doing what is sociology (laughs) um so yeah thank you that is the biggest compliment you could give to phil and i and our show is um, is that we make it accessible because that was the primary goal of uh, semi-intellectual museums is make this knowledge that is often stored up in the ivory tower or presented in a very obtuse way. Uh, we try to make it accessible and sort of fun and and kind of democratize uh, knowledge is is the idea of semi-intellectual museums. So again, I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing where Phil takes it. And also when he says and does and brings up on uh, on your show as well when he comes on. Yes, absolutely. And uh, uh, I'll definitely have him on soon. Thanks again so much, man, for coming on. This has been so much fun. <laughs> I know my cheeks hurt. Thanks for having me, man. <laughs> <laughs> a big thank you to Matt Sanderson for coming on the podcast to add a great perspective to the conversation about ancient astronaut theory and the phenomenon as a whole. He is a font of knowledge when it comes to anthropology and just offering up something different and and something that's even at times right in front of our faces. So thank you to him. He's been a great supporter of the podcast from the beginning. Go check out his work on Semi-Intellectual Musings. Um, I'll have a link in the show notes for this episode for that. And keep an eye out for his upcoming podcast. It should be out sometime this month, uh, if not soon. But I'll let you know when the first episode drops. Our next two episodes will be a little late because they're a collaboration between Our Strange Skies and another podcast. I'm not going to give you any more information other than that. If you've been following me on social media, you know what the subject of the episodes is going to be, but instead of a Monday release for the next two weeks, it's going to be coming out Wednesday or Thursday. If you want to connect with us, hit up the usual social media outlets, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Search for Our Strange Skies and you'll find us. And you can email us at ourstrangeskies at gmail.com. If you're interested in bonus content, we have a Patreon page for the show. Uh, perks include shout-outs on the show, 
early access to episodes like this one, and monthly bonus episodes called Their Strange Skies, which delves into the non-American sightings that I don't cover on the regular show. Uh, the next installment has been released and is free to everyone right now. It came out on the regular feed and on the Patreon feed. Uh, it's about the Zanfretta abductions, and it is one of the most buckwild cases that I have ever read. And I say that, like, all the time, but, like, this has it all. A, a, an innocent security guard gets abducted by aliens who are just trying to find a new home, and they think Earth is going to be the place for it. So go check that out if you haven't already. It's uh, it's it's a fun episode. Shag Harbor will be coming at you soon. I'm going to be doing that with my buddy uh, Zanger over at Zang This, so... Definitely keep an eye out for that. Uh, Shout-outs to my newest patrons, uh, MG3K, which I apologize. You became a patron months ago, and I completely spaced on it because we had a uh, little time in between where uh, there were some gaps in some episodes, but uh, I apologize. Shout-out to MJ3K and Tristan Benedict Hall and the Mad Scientist Podcast. Always love... Chris and Marie over there, thank you so much for supporting the show. Please rate and review the show on iTunes. It would be greatly appreciated. All these reviews help us to become a little more visible to new listeners. So please head on over to iTunes or the Apple Podcast app. Leave us a rating and review. And don't just do it for us. Do it for all the podcasts you love. We all love it when you leave us reviews. Our eyes literally light up. We just love that shit. We eat it up. It definitely helps us keep going when we don't think we could keep going. So remember that, and please rate and review the podcast that you love. Special thanks to the members of the OSIC. They are constantly helping to make this a better show. So I'm going to name names. Uh, thanks to Jennifer, Annie, Desdemona, Molly, Lauren, and Rory. Thank you all so much. I would probably be... I I don't even know what this podcast would be if it weren't for all of them. Uh, they have contributed to some of the best episodes that we've done. The minutes to, of our mythology episodes, they helped so much in that. They've contributed a lot of information that's coming down the pike for Roswell, which those episodes are now going to be coming out in October, just because... That's also requiring a lot of research on my end. I'm basically reading, like, six books for this damn fucking Roswell shit. But you know what? We're doing it because it deserves to be done, and it deserves to be done right. So we're doing it. Our logo was designed by Tessa Brown, and our theme song was composed by Shane Yoder from PutThemInASong.com. And finally, don't forget to look up because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies or our ancient past in gray we trust